0: Thomas Atkinson, Arthur Bicole, John Blackstone, Robert Briggs, Arthur Brunskill, William Clarkson, Herbert Clayton, Alfred Edwards, Albert Holstead, Harry Hardman, Ben Ingham, Andrew Irvine, Wilfred A. Con, John Lockett, Richard H. Mundy, Richard Omerod William Sharp. Sam Smith Ralph H. Thornley James Toohey
1: Smoky town where they were born Down in the valley, smoky little streets they were pals from childhood days Climbing trees and running through the fields And they all played together through the turning of the years Sharing their laughter, sharing all their fears The seasons saw them growing up. The seasons passing turned them round Through the turning, turning, turning years
2: The Accrington Pals Accrington, like a thousand other towns and villages across Europe, enjoyed the flaming summer of 1914. But, as Bill Turner, author of The Accrington Pals, relates, life in the East Lancashire town was not one of contentment.
3: Before the war in uh, in Accrington, uh, it was an industrial town, one of the sort of murky, dirty uh, industrial towns of Lancashire. Its main produce was textiles, cotton mills galore. There was a, a large engineering works which dominated the town, actually, Howard and Bullers. Howard and Bullers made engineering machinery, spinning frames and textile machinery in general, and they were about the the biggest employer of manpower in the town. About 4,500 men and boys were there. There was also chemical works, heavy chemical works, and uh, textile engineering, as I said, coal mines. It was a a typical Lancashire town of the time. As 1914 approached, the boom times of the economy uh, were just about coming to an end. The textile boom was beginning to fade, and textile mills were starting to, uh, to close. Well, actually, what they were doing, they were closing because for extended periods rather than closing altogether. And uh, in, ni- in the summer of 1914, many factories were closing for two or three or four weeks with the ostensible reason of overhauling machinery and the like, but actually there was a, a large drop of orders. So, at the beginning of the war, there was just the beginnings of of a slump, a shortage of work, and there was an increase in unemployment.
2: In June, one of the local textile mills closed for six weeks due to lack of orders, and the engineering industry was facing the possibility of a strike for higher wages. On the last Sunday of June the 28th, as Accrington blistered through the warmest day of the year, in a town far away, the Archduke Franz Ferdinand and his wife heirs to the throne of Austro-Hungary, were assassinated. The Great War was about to begin. And that war had repercussions internationally and locally. The Accrington Observer was clear on where it stood.
0: It is most unfortunate black and forbidding war clouds should be spreading over Europe. Accrington exports vast quantities of machinery to Russia, Germany, Austria and France. One needs no far-seeing eye to realise the state of affairs should war come upon us.
2: But war was upon Accrington and the rest of Europe. Local people returned from Paris with news of streets filled with soldiers. The St. John's Ambulance Brigade was asked for volunteers for a possible army expeditionary force. Holiday leave for local policemen was cancelled. On Sunday, the 2nd of August, crowds gathered outside the newspaper office awaiting news, any news. That afternoon, notices were posted calling for army reservists to prepare to join their regiments. Three days later, 500 reservists left the town on special trains. Hundreds cheered them on their way to active service. The enthusiasm of the moment drew a response from the Accrington Observer.
0: We were one of a host of newspapers which worked up to the 11th hour for peace. War is a miserable way of settling differences. Now that England has drawn the sword in defence of our interests, we join shoulder to shoulder with the rest of the country and pray that God will defend the right.
1: School days end, the lads all went to work, some spinning, some weaving in the sheds. on the land or down the pit, working hard to earn their daily bread. And they all went walking up old Pendle Hill on Sundays the lark sank high above the dale Little Willie Riley played his mandolin and sang they were laughing they were singing then Yakring
0: William Bolton, Tom Cordy Arthur P. Conway Thomas Cook Charles Cox John Cunliffe John T. Davis Alfred B. Dix Harry Dixon Israel Edge James H. Emmett Sidney Gibbons Thomas Grimshaw Samuel D. Hardman Albert Hargreaves William A. Hodson, Ernest Holden.
2: Popular enthusiasm was reflected in the call from Lord Kitchener, Commander-in-Chief of the Army, on August 7th for 100,000 volunteers. In Liverpool, Lord Derby came up with a proposal to raise a comrades regiment. The idea was taken up by mayors across Britain. The notion of the PALS regiments, where friends would enlist together, was sown.
3: The... The town responded enthusiastically to the idea of of war. I think the main motivation was not so much patriotism, as has been claimed, but for the young men, again with this uh, sense of foreboding about the future, employment, to have some adventure. Don't forget they worked, when they were working, five and a half days a week in very poor conditions and very low pay. And this combination of temporary unemployment and the outbreak of war gave the young men of the town an opportunity for adventure. And Lord Derby, a Lancashire man, of course, he had the idea that men would fight better together if they were to be in the company of their friends. And this is where the PALS concept originated. Lord Derby and Lord Kitchener, together with Harold Baker, who was coincidentally the MP for Accrington, he was the war secretary, decided to appeal to people to enlist in this Third Army and base it on an appeal to the people of the in the country. The response was immediate, of course. Many men were enthusiastic in enlisting to take part in this fight. And the Lord Mayors of the various cities, certainly in the uh, north and northwest of England, and all the major industrial cities, practically vied with one another. It was a matter of municipal jealousy and competition. Uh, The mayor really wanted his young men to be in a battalion that was based on Accrington.
2: Among those enlisting in Accrington, there were many first and second generation Irish Men who had come from Wexford and Mayo to work in the mills, but were answering a call, if only to make a living wage.
4: One of the local men who
2: responded was George Pollard.
4: On September the 15th, I went with my friend Ernie for our medical at Willow Street School. As an apprentice, my wage was ten and six a week. When you joined up, you got twenty one shillings a week. First thing they did at home was send for the insurance collector. He put me in for a shilling a week.
0: Alter C. Billington. Edward Chadwick Thomas F. Dust Reginald Hay Alfred Hart Frederick Holmes Harry Ingham Richard Ingham William McKenna James H. Maudsley William A. Omerod William J. Pickering Frederick Pickup Harry Simpson Frederick Stott 1916 came
1: we need more lads to battle with the home Lads of Lancashire, heed the call With God on our side, the battle will soon be won So they all came marching to the beating of the drums Down from the fields and factories they come SMILING AT THE GIRLS WHO CAME TO SEE THEM ON THEIR WAY THEY WERE MARCHING, MARCHING, MARCHING AWAY THE ACRINGTON Pals.
2: It took just ten days for Accrington and its contributing towns, Burnley, Chorley and surrounding villages, to muster its regiment. Granted, Liverpool had raised 4,000 men in five days, and Newcastle had raised a battalion in 24 hours, but Accrington was rightly proud of its achievement.
3: The idea then that he had was to ask the mayors of neighbouring towns, such as Burnley and Blackburn, for some help in this. Both of them weren't enthusiastic because, first of all, Blackburn had a, a strong military tradition of the uh, territorial army. They had no reason to join anything belonging to Ackerington. Neither had Burnley. But in Burnley, for instance, friends of John Harwood got together and helped to form a Burnley company. Now, John Harwood's target was a 1,000 men from a population of
5: 40,000. With the battalion assembled, training began. I was in my element. We paraded every morning and afternoon. There were some, of course, who arrived for the afternoon parade after being in the pub at lunchtime. We only had our civilian clothes to wear. Every day, large crowds watched us parade. With so many not working, there wasn't much else for them to do. It was a bit of a shambles sometimes, especially when the Sergeant Major ordered, ''About turn!'' And some carried on marching. The men went through the preliminary training.
4: The development of soldierly spirit, the training of the body, training in the use of rifle, bayonet, and spear.
2: Not everyone took training and the war very seriously. Faraway
5: trenches were still quite green. A typical week's lecture started on Monday with Lieutenant Roberts on the subject of Belgium. Unfortunately, someone unknown changed the slide sequence on the magic lantern. His description of Bruges Cathedral was accompanied by a slide of a steamer entering Antwerp Arbour.
2: Church parades were also a regular feature of the training routine. And at St John's Church of England, Reverend Mills told the soldiers they had the chance of a lifetime in going to the front. With bullets shrieking about them, he said, no one man could disregard God. And he had no doubt they would do great deeds. In time, the Accrington Pals moved to Wales to continue their training. Finally, in mid-December, the preparation was over and the Pals took ship on the Ionic. Not for Europe, but for Egypt.
0: He sent me a card, short and sweet, from the ship. Dear wife and child, goodbye until I return. We set sail today, Sunday.
2: Life in Egypt was not to be the horror that Europe became. But the routine was boring and reduced rations, lack of pay, and the sight of shell-shocked survivors from Gallipoli held their own terrors. Quieter times along the Suez led to the removal of nine divisions back to Europe and the more pressing situation in Belgium and France. Among the returning troops were the Accrington pals. Europe was a new experience for them. Neither training nor Egypt was any preparation
4: for what lay ahead. It was so peaceful, with hardly a sound or movement. I thought half-seriously the war will last forever at this rate. There's no happening. Each of us received alternately a pick or shovel and were put to work repairing the trench parapet. It was still very quiet. Suddenly there was a metallic wing we ducked, thinking it was a bullet. But someone's picket struck a shovel. Then... I heard a noise. First I thought it was a train coming through the air, blown up around me. A shell crashed, only a few yards away. I was never so scared in my life. I tried to get in a small dugout, but it was already full of men. The old hands knew what was coming. I got down on my knees at the bottom of a trench with the other men. Ah, thank God I had a spade to put over my head. We heard above the noise in order to put on our gas helmets. As we struggled to put them on, some men were being carried away and laid out. The shelling eventually ceased. We were given hot tea with bread and cheese. The food attracted huge, bloated rats above us on the parapets. Some men had no more sense than to throw pieces of cheese to them. Because of the rats, we later slept as best we could with our cap comforters over our faces for protection. I thought,
5: this is my future, and there's no way out of it. To be let, Shrapnel View three minutes from the German lines. This attractive and well-built dugout, containing one kitchen bedroom and up-to-date Funk hole four foot by three foot. All modern conveniences, including gas and water. This desirable residence stands one foot above water level, commanding an excellent view of the enemy trenches. Excellent shooting, duck and snipe.
2: Conditions in the trenches were dire. Men suffered in many ways. Stress was a constant companion as were rats, bombardment and snipers but worse was in store the Accrington Pals with thousands of others were massing for an attack on the German lines massing for the first day of the Somme
3: the plan for the attack on the German lines on the 1st of July 1916 was that uh, a week long artillery bombardment would precede the attack This, of course, started, and uh, unfortunately, the, the day of the attack, originally, was for the last day in June, not the first day in July. So by the end of the week's bombardment, the artillery shells were becoming scarce and had been used up, and worse still, the wrong sort of shells were being fired Instead of high explosive shells, which were intended to destroy the German trenches, they finished up firing uh, shrapnel shells, which were sort of an anti-personnel shell, which didn't destroy either trenches nor barbed wire.
0: He told me that the evening before the attack, they followed a route to the front lines that was marked by white tape. In some of the villages they passed through, the handful of locals who had stayed watched them pass in silence. They had tea and biscuits on a country lane. It was a beautiful evening. After the meal, each man was given five bars of chocolate, a box of matches, and a sausage. They were suspicious of this. He told me. They thought the sausage meat might have been drugged to calm them before they went over the top.
4: Each of us bombers collected a hundred Mills bombs and uh, twenty-five rifle grenades with cartridges and detonators in bucket bomb carriers. He said the journey along the
0: communication trench was frightening. Everyone was silent and afraid. At one of the junctions, they passed a huge open common grave with hundreds of wooden crosses stacked up nearby.
3: A couple of days before the pals were due to move into the trenches in the early hours of the 1st of July, the uh, general, Hunter Weston, who was the commander of the brigade, he gave them a pep talk, usual sort of thing about how they would finish up in Berlin and that sort of thing, and he assured the men that there wouldn't be a rat alive in the German trenches.
5: He gave us the usual thing about our doing our bit cheerily in the big push. We knew we said the same to everybody, and he confidently assured us the planned artillery barrage would completely destroy the German way and forward trenches. He told us there'd be no Germans left in the trenches when we got there. There would not even be a rat alive, he said. The evening
3: before the 1st of July, the Pals marched seven miles... And it was a lovely, sunny June evening. Walked seven miles from Warnament Wood, where they'd been staying in wooden huts, and entered the trench system. There's a tremendous lot of congestion between the troops that were already there leaving. And you think about 700 men coming in and 700 men going out, and either side of the pals, similar numbers were moving... The PALS got into position about three o'clock in the morning. Fortunately, it was fine and warm.
2: It was four o'clock in the morning, broad daylight, before all the men were in place. 720 men of the PALS regiment were spread along 350 yards of the front line. The nighttime shelling eased off, and the men waited for zero hour on the morning of July 1st. 1916 Seven days of shelling by the artillery had obliterated the German resistance or so the Pals were told
3: 7.20am the first line of four of the Pals would cut through the British barbed wire in front of the trenches and move out to a point about 50 yards into Norman's Land lie down in a line they call those the shelling seats because they actually they were safer there than anywhere else because the shell fire from both sides was going over their heads so they were quite happy there relatively happy at 725 the second line moved out of the trench came through the barbed wire and laid down 25 yards ahead of the trenches in norman's land at 729 the third line moved out came through the barbed wire and and just stayed there. All this was while the artillery bombardment was on. At 7.30, the fourth line simply moved out of the trenches and all four lines advanced across Norman's land. In the meantime, the Germans, who of course had been well aware of the week-long bombardment, that told them that an attack was imminent, the German trenches were also on higher ground than the British trenches and German observers and aircraft and so on had simply watched all the British preparations for many weeks. They'd seen all the material being brought up and all the men moving with with, uh, no trouble at all. So the Germans knew there was bound to be an attack, and as soon as the 7.30 ceasefire happened, they immediately realised that now the attack was on. Germans were better at building trenches than the British were. The Germans considered, and they decided where their trenches would be, they considered they were there to stay. So they dug deep trenches, extremely comprehensive uh, civil engineering was involved in digging bunkers 30 and 40 feet below ground. They looted the cottages from the village of Serre, which was the objective of the Pals, and uh, in contrast to what were really water-filled ditches, which were the British trenches, the Germans were very well settled in bunkers in the ground with the tables and settees and goodness knows what down in their deep munches.
1: blue sky shining on the perfect day the lark was singing high above the sun Brothers, pals and fall lay, watching that sweet bird sing in the quiet of the dawn. And they all went walking out towards the howling gums, talking and laughing, calmly walking on, believing in the lies that left them dying in. And the lion 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 stay
5: The Accrenton
1: Palace.
0: James Bones, Joseph Barnes, David Bean, Joseph Bell, Thomas Berry, Walter Bowers, William Bowers, George E. Breckle, William Bretherton, Walter Briggs, Francis Brindle, Fred Broadley, John Brooks, Albert Berry, Percy Berry, Jack Calvert, Fred Cam, Thomas Carey, William Carr, Harry Chapman, William Chapman, Robert Charnley, Charles Clark, George Clayton. As soon
3: as the shelling ceased... They simply brought up their machine guns and their riflemen came up the steps out of the bunkers and to their amazement, the Germans saw ahead of them in this 200-yard-wide no-man's land four lines of troops coming towards them. To their left and to their right, there were troops coming towards them. But they were solely concerned with the, the Accrington Pals. They set up their machine guns and simply fired at the advancing troops. And the advancing troops were not charging. There was no bayonet charges or anything like that. They were simply doing what they'd been ordered to do, which was to simply walk across no-man's land. Each man had either a pick or a shovel, in addition to all his other equipment. And the idea of the High Command was that the Accrington Pals would simply repair the damaged German trenches, set themselves in them and await other troops to follow through them and continue the advance. So they weren't going to attack the Germans in that sense. The theory was there were no Germans there and not even a rat uh, alive. So to their amazement, they saw these heavily laden men simply walking towards them. Two machine guns actually did the damage with the Accrington Pals. They simply fired across open sights until they, they were starting to falter. They, they, they'd fired and fired and the guns were getting hot, too hot, and the German officer, uh, is reputed to have said, keep on firing, and, and sort of took his pistol in his hand to make sure the German machine gunners continue to fire. The other problem was, apart from this short-range machine gun fire, plus the riflemen, to the Accrington Pals left were the Sheffield City Battalion. They were advancing similarly. On their left, no British troops were advancing. The Sheffield City Battalion and the Accrington Pals were the very northernmost men of the whole of that British attack. Immediately the Germans, facing the troops that were not attacking, realised they weren't going to be attacked they simply turned their machine gun deck and fired right down the middle of no man's land. They enfiladed them.
4: I saw men fall back into the trenches. They attempted to climb out. Those of us who managed had to walk two yards apart very slowly, then stop, then walk again and so on. We all had to keep in line. Machine gun bullets were sweeping backward and forward and hitting the ground around our feet. Shells were bursting everywhere. I had no special feeling of fear except I knew we must all go forward until wounded or killed. There was no going back. Captain Riley fell after 30 yards. I didn't see him killed, but I knew immediately when we stopped. Once the message passed down the line from man to man, Captain Riley has been killed.
5: While we were walking in a line, my section came to a shell hole. We had to decide which way to go around. Some went to the left, I went to the right. A shell came over and I was thrown to the ground. I picked myself up and realised I had a flesh wound in the leg. I looked around and to the left of me there was nothing, not a man. For 50 yards on either side, not a man was going forward, only dead and wounded on the ground. He said he advanced 80
0: yards or so in a small group separated from the rest. They got so near the German wire that the Germans were throwing grenades at them. He got hit in the leg and made for a shell hole and dived in. He said they must have known he was there because they kept throwing grenades in. He was on his own. He could see no sign of anyone else. He looked again and saw some Germans coming towards him. A shell exploded right on them. He got another flesh wound in the leg. He said it was cruel for them, but lucky for him.
4: I was right in front of the machine gun post. I emptied a drum at a few Germans who were on the trench parapet. They were throwing stick bombs over my head. i got a bit too near. Some of them went back down the trenches. I was surprised to see how wide it was. I went after them. I got nearly to their second line. I looked around, and there was still only me there, so I decided to go back. I went back towards Shell hole about 20 yards into Norman's Land. I waited there, thinking the rest of the lads would be coming... I saw some Germans coming back up their trench. I fired at them and they vanished. I had some near squeaks. One bullet hit my water bottle. Another went through my haversack and broke all my biscuits. Then Jerry came back and I had another go at him. Then I picked up my gun and made for our front line. The colonel said, Was that you firing out there?
5: I said, Yes, sir. That's my lad, he said. Suddenly a piece of shrapnel hit Joe Roundtree on the leg. His clothing set alight. I knocked the shrapnel away and smothered the flames. I made Joe as comfortable as I could with splints made of box lids. He was in agonising pain. His legs smashed. A runner came into the dugout. Hello, Fred, how's things, he said. I told him it's a wasted effort to come here to issue bombs. Nobody wants them. He replied, bugger the bombs, everyone's gone. It's a washout. In less than ten minutes
3: of 700 pals i'm not sure of the actual number but approximately 700 men advancing across this 200 to 250 yard wide no man's land 235 at least were killed and 360 at least were wounded
0: he was lying two yards from the german lines he told me so he unbuckled his equipment and pushed himself along on his back he could hear the machine guns all the time he was getting near his own line when he passed a shell hole with three or four lads in it. One shouted to watch out that there was a sniper getting everybody who went past the hole. He told them he was bleeding and needed treatment so he'd chance it. He was getting near the line when he was shot through the top of the arm. He was lucky. He dropped into the trench and dragged himself to the advanced dressing station. He was put on a pig trestle. One man held his arms and another his legs while they took the shrapnel out of his leg. The bullet had gone right through his arm. Two days later,
4: he was on his way home.
2: Every man had a story, and every story had a twist.
4: A cyclist's company man dropped into the dugout. He had been wounded and was lost. As he crouched with his back to me, uh, looking towards the Germans, I felt a blow on my helmet. I choked with fumes and was blinded with ugh, blood and gore. I thought, I thought I was dead. A shell had exploded and shrapnel had pierced my helmet. The cyclist hadn't moved. He was still looking towards the Germans. I called to him and then saw the lower part of his body was gone. It was his blood and gore, not mine.
5: I was making my way along the trench when I saw some feet sticking out from under a ground sheet. I turned it over and thought, poor old Captain Gurney, and prepared myself to move the body. At this he woke up and ticked me off for disturbing the first rest he'd had for days. That day,
0: the first day at the Somme, was his 19th birthday.
2: Despite the desperate and suicidal courage of the Accrington Pals, the Germans held fast that day. The report of their number one machine gun company read, With great sacrifices, but with great bravery, a complete victory was achieved. To achieve this victory, their regiment pumped 74,000 rounds of rifle and machine gun ammunition and over 1,000 hand grenades into the ranks of the advancing Pals. When the survivors of the suicidal attack returned to Leuvencourt, they found this message fixed to their battalion notice board.
0: The following message to the division from the corps commander begins, Well done, my comrades of the 31st Division. Your discipline and determination were magnificent, and it was luck alone that has temporarily robbed you of success. Signed, Sir Aylmer Hunter Weston, GOC, 31st Division.
2: How bitter that must have read for the survivors and how sourly those words must have carried over the shell hole graves of the dead, crammed into a few hundred yards, massacred in minutes, and how sharply they must have been read by the families in Accrington, families who at first believed their sons and brothers and fathers had carried the day.
3: The national newspapers uh, hailed the July 1st attack of the Battle of the Somme initially as a success. The first edition's said that Serre had been captured and uh, other advances had been made. Even in Accrington, they knew there was going to be this big advance, in spite of censorship and all that sort of thing. They knew something was on on July the 1st. And there was a terrifically efficient postal service in that local newspapers and letters and parcels were delivered in to the men in the trenches. So there's constant correspondence between the trenches and home. But after July 1st, all the letters ceased to arrive in homes in Accrington. And after a day or two, people got together, people in the same streets and relatives and people who went to the same churches and that sort of thing, wondering what had happened. There was one incident which really sparked off a lot of uh, upset. A train was coming uh, through Accrington and Accrington is straddled by a, a large railway viaduct And there's a train on this viaduct, and it was full of wounded men on the way to military hospitals. And uh, a voice from the train shouted down to a group of people in the town and said, Where are we? Because it was night time. And somebody in the crowd says, Accrington. Accrington. Oh, your lot's been wiped out.
1: town that heard the news Down in the valley, smoky little streets Houses quiet and curtains pulled All round the town, a silent shroud of grief And the larks were singing still above old Pendle Hill wind was in the bracken and the sun was shining still. And the lark was singing sweetly as the evening fell upon the sun. On Edward Parkinson, Bobby Henderson, Billy Clegg, Johnny Malloy, Norman Jones, Albert Berry, Willie Riley.
0: Albert W. Kenworthy John Laffey Austin Lang James M. Lever Harry Livesey, Alfred H. Lord Alfred Lord Samuel Lord Frank Marsden Edwin Marsland Albert Mercer John Metcalf William Milton Albert Mulhall Edward Nixon John W. Noble Harry Nutter John O'Connor William O'Hare Fred Parkington, Edward Parkinson Thomas O'Parry James Pendlebury, George Pickup Ernest Place John Pollard William Ratcliffe Herbert C. Warcliffe Henry Rayton Albert Rigg Ernest Riley Henry D. Riley Willie Riley Oliver Rimmer Thomas Robinson Willie Robinson Albert E. Rogers Seth Rollins George Sanders Leonard Saunders Crowder Shaw Edward Shuttleworth Robert Smithies James Speakman Thomas Bedding James Squires Charles Stonehouse George Stuttard Walter Sunley Walter Sutcliffe Thomas Taylor Herbert W. Thompson, James F. Thompson, Jerry Thompson, Walter C. Todd, William Tomlinson, John Henry Tewton, Arthur Tyson, Herbert Unsworth, John E. Ward, Harry Watson, Frederick Webb, Joseph Walley, Albert Wilkinson, Fred Wilkinson, John Wickstead, Herbert Wood, Thomas H. Yates.